Okay, brothers and sisters, it is good to be with you. And we are returning to our study of the book of Romans. And this morning's passage that we'll be focusing on is Romans 1.18 through verse 20. And there was a misprint in the bulletin, I apologize. Verse 20, I think, is as far as we'll get this morning. Uh, and where we've been really... Um, over the last couple of weeks is leading up to what I would call the crux and the centrality of the whole book, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that's what we looked at last week with Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And what we saw is that this wonderful gospel of Christ that Paul is separated unto, that he has been preaching and heralding and wants these Romans to know, is the key to life. It is that message which saves. In fact, it is the only message that has the power to save. That's why he calls the gospel the power of God. And it's why Paul has no shame in the message, because there is no other hope. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that name is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David. He was the promised Messiah, the one who would sit and reign on the throne of David forever. But he wasn't born like every other man. He wasn't of the seed of Adam. Because if he were, he would have sin. But that was bypassed because of his miraculous birth, like we looked at this morning in our catechism. He was conceived of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. And because of this, he is our great high priest who is made like us in every point, but without sin. And he is also the one to whom we come for help to the throne of grace in time of need. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're called to. Look to Christ and be saved. And we saw the wonderful truth that this righteousness of God that he revealed is not just the righteousness by which God is righteous and by which he will judge all the unrighteous, but it is this righteousness that he has made available to all who believe. In his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they by faith apprehend, take hold of the very righteousness of Jesus. And by it, by believing God's word, they themselves become righteous, declared just, forgiven, in right standing with the God of heaven. It's good news, brothers. That's why it's called the gospel. Glad tidings. Now, on the heels of this wonderful central doctrine to our faith, justification by faith alone, through Christ alone. Paul now introduces a new concept, the wrath of God. <laughs> I'd like to invite you to stand one more time as we read this passage together so that we honor the Lord through his word. Romans 1, 18. I'm going to read all the way to 32, but we're going to focus on the first Three verses here, 18, 18 through 20. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the, cre the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We'll stop there. You may be seated. So as I said, there is a clear pivot in Paul's uh, writing in his letter from the gospel and the good news of justification by faith to the wrath of God, which kind of seems out of place. But is it? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Why is it that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel? Because sinful man lacks righteousness, he's unrighteous. That's why the righteousness of God must be revealed for us to be saved. Man in his natural state is ungodly and he's unrighteous. We're going to look at those terms this morning. And the wrath of God, the scripture teaches, abides on him. It settles upon him. It rests upon him. And that's our topic for today, the wrath of God. It's not a message that is what you would call popular preaching, but I'm sorry, we can't get around it if we teach and preach the word of God verse by verse, which is what we aim to do. There's a lot of people who don't like talking about wrath because it offends their sensibilities. But beloved, let me tell you this. The gospel, which is the good news, the glad tidings, has zero meaning unless we understand the bad news first. That's why Paul introduces it to this to the Romans at this point, starting in verse 18. And I have three points that I want to leave with you today about the wrath of God. Three points. The first is this, the reality of God's wrath. It's real. The second is the target of God's wrath. Who or upon whom does this wrath come? And the third is the reason for God's wrath. Why has God revealed this wrath? So first, the reality of God's wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is wrath? Wrath, scripturally, is strong passion. It is anger, vengeance, ire, violent punishment. But mark this. The wrath of God is not like the wrath of man, which is capricious, meaning it is um, uncontrolled, outbursts of anger, 
That's what we do as men because of sin. God's anger, his wrath is not like that. His wrath is settled. It's directed. It's determined. And it is directed against all sin and all sinners. It's described in Scripture as a consuming fire. God is described as a consuming fire. And that's the picture of wrath. It burns. Let me give you an example. When Moses and the people of Israel gathered at Sinai to receive God's law, you remember the scene? They all drew near to the mountain. And we're told that the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of, of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. That's how they saw the glory of the Lord, as a consuming fire. And then in Exodus chapter 20, right after the law is given, listen to verses 18 and 19. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. See, the people were terrified by the awesome manifestation of God's glory. We use that word, by the way, awesome, in a wrong way all the time, right? Everything is awesome. No, everything is not awesome. Awesome means awe-inspiring. It means terrible. It means to be feared. That's our Lord. He is awesome. No one is like him. That word really should be reserved for him alone. And in Exodus 32, when God tells Moses to get down from the mountain because the people had corrupted themselves. Remember, they were engaged in all sorts of sexual immorality. They had made a, a golden calf image that they had carved. In fact, Aaron had carved it with his own engraving tool. <laughs> God says this to Moses, I have seen this people stop there. Anytime in scripture you see this people, it's bad news. God is not speaking favorably of the people. I have seen this people and indeed it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. And of course, Moses who is a wonderful type of Christ, stands in the gap between God's wrath and the people of Israel, and he pleads God's mercy and God and his long-suffering, and God graciously relents. He turns his wrath away from consuming them on the spot, which is what they deserved. So this wrath of God, you can see, is an intense rage. It burns against all sin and all sinners. Here's a simple definition that I thought was helpful from Wayne Grudem about the wrath. He says this, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. He intensely hates it. King David in Psalm chapter 7 said, God is a just judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. <laughs> Sometimes people get hung up on this when they think about or hear about God as wrathful, angry with the wicked, they say, my God is love. I can't conceive of a God that is wrathful. That's so Old Testament, right? Um, yes, God is love, but he's also wrath. The two must go together. They do go together. And we have to understand that because that's what scripture teaches about our God. 
And we can't fall into the trap of breaking the second commandment by fashioning an, an image of what we think God is like in our minds. I don't think God's like that. This is what I think God is like. I'm sorry. You're just breaking the second commandment. It doesn't matter what you believe God is like. He is what he is, who he is. And he's revealed himself to us. And we are responsible to that knowledge. That's the point. Why is it that God hates sin so much? Why is he wrathful against sin? Why does he burn against it? Psalm 45, 7, you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. You see how the two go together? You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. It's precisely because God loves righteousness that he must hate wickedness. There's no such thing as a God who is only love. God loves righteousness, which means he must hate the opposite. Everything that is unrighteous. And we know this to be true in our spirits, don't we, brothers and sisters? When we perceive some injustice in the world to an individual or to a group of people, and we say and we feel anger toward the injustice. Why is that? Because God has given us the light of conscience to know right from wrong. We all have it. No one had to be taught it. It's God-given. And so we feel a sense of that injustice. God is holy. Holy means separate from sin. He is pure. He is righteous. He himself is the standard of goodness. And he loves his holiness supremely. That's it. He loves his holiness. And so therefore he hates everything that is unholy. And everyone who is unholy. So God's wrath is a reality, brothers and sisters. It's clearly taught in scripture. And in fact, there's many, many examples of God's wrath being poured out in Scripture. These are what I would call direct forms of wrath. His judgments, his curses. Let's just go through a few of them, shall we? Let's start at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. What happened when man sinned and fell? Well, God pronounces several curses in Genesis 3. You see a curse that he pronounces on the serpent, right? He said he would be cursed above all the cattle of the field, above every animal of the field. He's going to go on his belly from now on, which implies that he had feet before. He established a cosmic warfare between the serpent and between the woman, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In other words, between Christ as God's holy seed and all his people, the righteous, and the devil and his unholy seed. There is a cosmic warfare God has established as his wrath is poured out against sin. Ultimately, we see that that points to Christ. Christ is the one who would defeat the serpent by crushing his head, by defeating the devil, dealing the death blow to him. Would only crush Christ or bruise Christ's heel. That we saw on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions, wasn't he? But God raised him from the dead. So the victory belongs to the seed of the woman, Christ, Jesus, our Lord. On the woman, you remember he pronounced a few curses, pain and childbearing. Pain and childbearing is a constant reminder that every child born in this world after the fall is conceived in sin. And 
also that she would constantly seek to reverse the God-given roles that he had given to the man and to the woman, and she would seek to usurp, to take over the authority that God had given to the man. And he said, no, the man shall rule over you. That's a curse. You remember that the ground was cursed because of Adam's sin. No longer would the ground yield food easily, but would grow thorns and thistles and weeds, and Adam would toil with hard work by the sweat of his brow just to eat bread all his days. And then ultimately, the final curse that we see is death. You remember God promised from the beginning, in the day that you eat thereof, referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely what? Die. That's right. And God fulfilled that promise. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, they died. That doesn't just mean physical death. And we see that. He said, you will return to the dust. You were taken from the dust and to the dust you will return. There's the physical death. But he died spiritually. God cast him out of the garden, didn't he? He drove him out. And he guarded the entrance of the east end of the garden with cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way. There's the wrath. In other words, man on his own is not able to come back into the presence of God because there's wrath that burns against him for his sin. Another way must be sought into the garden. And then we have the great flood. We see in Genesis 6, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved at his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. And then this wonderful verse. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord spared Noah and his family, eight souls out of all humanity at that time. And he buried everyone else in a deluge, worldwide flood that nobody survived. It's the wrath of God. And then, of course, you remember Sodom and Gomorrah. God sends two angels to rescue Lot and his family before raining down fire and brimstone on those twin cities and on all the cities of the plain. They were burned up in smoke the wrath of God. And then we have the history of Israel, and we read about the captivities. Israel, the northern kingdom, carried away by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The wrath of God, carried away by a nation whose language they didn't understand, whose customs they didn't practice. And then again, Judah, the southern kingdom, carried away by the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, in 586 BC. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, poured out in captivity. Some people think that the wrath of God is different in the Old Testament than it is in the New. Um, they look at examples like Sodom and Gomorrah and say, well, God doesn't rain down fire and brimstone anymore. He's not wrathful like that. That was the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament, Jesus, he's all love and grace. Well, it's true that Jesus is the very manifestation of the grace of God and the love of God but consider this, John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
So there's the wrath. It's still there. It's still here. It remains. That means, by implication, the starting position of every person who comes into this world is that he is under the wrath of God. He is condemned already because he doesn't believe. That's where he starts. And so he must be rescued, taken out from under that condemnation. The wrath of God must be turned away and averted from above his head, like a rain cloud, like a thunder cloud that's going to come down on him. And then, of course, we have the supreme picture of the wrath of God in the New Testament, and that is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where God poured out the full cup of his fury against sin, the sin of all his people of all time. And he poured it out and concentrated it on the head of his son, who, we're told, drank every last drop of the wrath of God for us, brothers and sisters, that we might live, that that wrath we're talking about might be averted because it burned him up. He experienced an eternity of hell for all of us on that cross. Think about that. It's unfathomable. The cross is where God's mercy and his justice kiss. God was satisfied because his wrath was poured out. It must be poured out. The question is, is it going to be poured out on your head or on the head of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? And then after the cross, of course, we have the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., because Israel had rejected her Messiah. And God used the Romans. He raised them up. And Titus Vespasian led the charge. And they leveled the city in 70 AD. They burned it with fire. And we're told that not one stone was left upon another of the temple. The wrath of God. And then, brothers and sisters, of course, this is the thing that all who are outside of Christ ought to fear. The great day of the Lord the final judgment that is coming for everyone. It's what we read this morning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord Jesus, when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And that means know him savingly. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. On all those people, the wrath that abides on them will come to a head and destroy them finally in that great day of judgment. So scripture teaches the love of God. It does. And it also teaches the wrath of God. And we must embrace both. This is why Paul said the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel as his power to save all who believe. There's the grace, mercy, and love. And now he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Same word, apocalypse, unveiled. Both the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven and the wrath of God in parallel are revealed. You see, the gospel, the good news, can't be understood without the bad news. Right. Paul is laying the groundwork for the preciousness of the gospel in these verses 18 through 32 by showing us how God's wrath is revealed universally. And as we get into this, Lord willing, we'll see that the kind of wrath that he's describing in this passage 
is a little different from the wrath that we talked about in some of these Old, Old Testament and even New Testament examples, where God is directly pouring out wrath and a curse. The kind of wrath that he's going to be talking about is a wrath of what we would call judicial abandonment. God removing his restraining hand of grace and allowing man, giving man over to the very lust and evils of his own heart. So the first point is the wrath, the wrath of God is real and it's manifest. We have seen it and we do see it. And now Paul's second point is this, the target of God's wrath. Who are those against whom this wrath is targeted? And here's the answer, verse 18. Against or upon, it can also be translated, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So that describes who they are, and it describes what they do. Ungodly, ungodliness, that refers to a lack of reverence or worship of God, of the true God. You could also think about it this way. Those who lack the fear of the Lord. In other words, it's a wrong attitude about God. Those who have no fear of God before their eyes are the ungodly. And the unrighteous are those who lack right standing with God. And so everything that they do is unrighteous. They're lawless. They break God's law constantly. So we have unrighteousness referring to a lack of, um, excuse me, ungodliness referring to a lack of right attitude, a lack of the fear of the Lord. And unrighteousness is the practice of all uh, lawless behavior, breaking God's law. Wrong attitude, wrong behavior. So what's Paul saying? God's wrath is revealed against all who lack the fear of the Lord and against those whose deeds are marked by lawlessness. Or think about it this way. The wrath of God is on all those who have broken the first table of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, which deals with what? God's man's relationship with God. And his wrath is upon all those who have broken the second table of the law. That refers to man's behavior toward his fellow man, right? So who does that capture? Everyone, right? Listen to James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So the law is like a chain, and it has links that make up the chain. If you break one of those links in the chain, the integrity of the entire chain is broken. That's what James is saying. So if you've broken the law even just one time, God is guilty of all, of being a lawbreaker of all of it. Israel was commanded to keep all God's commandments and statutes to do them, right? Did they do that? No. Do we do that? No. You see, this is a net that captures every person in human history. Born of Adam is captured by this, the wrath of God. And I want to impress upon you one other thing here. The order of the words matters. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness comes first. Unrighteousness second. Why? Because 
All the ungodly are of necessity unrighteous. Think about it this way. A bad tree bears what? Bad fruit. If your nature is fleshly, unredeemed, then what will you bring forth? Works of the flesh. But if you are a partaker of the divine nature, as we are in Christ, then we can bring forth the works of the Spirit of God. The nature determines the actions. There are people who say that we need to fix unrighteous behavior in the culture. But you know where they come short? They don't address the ungodly attitude, the wrong relationship that we have because we don't have the fear of God before our eyes. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we can't fix unrighteous behavior until we address the ungodly attitude. Racism, exploitation, and every other evil in the heart of man cannot be legislated out. It can't. We can't incentivize people with whatever to improve their behavior. It doesn't work. It doesn't last. The nature has to change first. We have to become godly in order to be righteous in our behavior. So the target of God's wrath is all the ungodly and unrighteous, which is all mankind. All are sinners and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We've all sinned because we're all sinners. And unless the wrath is turned away in Christ alone, it abides on us. That's the key to remember. And in fact, the scripture teaches, we're going to get to this Lord willing in chapter 2, that that wrath actually builds steam. It adds it heaps itself up to the day of judgment or against the day of judgment. So we have the reality of the wrath of God. We have the... Huh, you hate when you forget your second point. The target of God's wrath is all of us. And then we have the reason for God's wrath. Now, the reason, the third point is the reason for God's wrath. Why is God's wrath revealed? Here's our answer. Because all who are ungodly and unrighteous, they do something. They suppress. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That word suppress means to hold down. Some translations might say. It also means to hold back, to restrain. You could also think about it this way. Detain, as in incarcerate, to put into prison. In all of these terms, the idea is this. We are doing something that prevents the truth of God from going forward. We're holding it back. Um, some people talk about this uh, by analogy, uh, thinking of a coil. A coil is something that you press down, right? So if you think about a large coil that requires all your strength to push down, it takes a lot of strength to hold that coil down, doesn't it? Because the coil wants to recoil. It wants to come back to its starting position. There's a picture of what we do with the truth of God. We suppress it. We hold it down. You could also think about it this way. The sun shines its rays from heaven down to earth, and those rays bounce off the surface of the earth, and they go back toward heaven. Now, we have an atmosphere, right? And that atmosphere captures the rays of the sun and produces what's called the greenhouse effect. That's why our earth is able to be warm and comfortable. 
If we didn't have an atmosphere, those rays would bounce all the way into space and we'd be freezing, right? So in the same way, God shines the light of his truth from heaven to man. And rather than reflecting the glory, the light of the truth of God back to himself, we hold it in. We suppress it and press it down. How would we let it go back to God? Well, praise, thanksgiving, worship, adoration, acknowledgement. That's how the, the light should go forward from all of us. It's been revealed and it, it is meant to return to the Lord. There's a wonderful uh, doxology that's given at the end of Romans chapter 11. For of him and through him and to him are all things. Amen. There's a whole lot that I'm sure could be unpacked about that verse, brothers and sisters. But I think it kind of fits with this concept. The light of God's truth is from him. It's meant to shine upon us and through us and return back to him. But it doesn't because of our sin. And that's why the wrath of God abides on us. You could uh, maybe argue that man's man in his sin is a bit like a black hole. Black holes do not return light. They just absorb light. Not a perfect analogy because we know from John 1 that Jesus himself, we're told, is the light that lights every man that comes into this world. That refers to what? The light of conscience. We all know what's right and what's wrong because God has given it to us through Christ. And it says in John 1, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness, that's us, did not comprehend it, some versions say. The word actually means overcome it. The darkness did not overcome the light. In other words, the light still burns. It may be a pilot light, but it's still there in all of us. It's the conscience. But man refuses to let the light of God's truth reflect back to God. He suppresses it. And we're told he suppresses it in unrighteousness. What does that mean? In himself, because he himself is unrighteous. He's ungodly and unrighteous. So you see, he's incarcerated the truth that God has revealed within himself. He won't let it return as praise and adoration and thanksgiving and worship to God. And where does that happen? Specifically, it happens in our minds when we don't acknowledge God. It happens in our hearts when we don't love God. It happens in our wills when we don't want to serve God. We want to serve ourselves. In other words, the whole of man is affected by sin. That's what we call the doctrine of total depravity. There's not a faculty or a, a part of who you are that's not affected by sin. We're totally depraved. Now, what exactly is this truth that man suppresses in unrighteousness? Look at verse 19. Verse 19, because what may, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. What truth has God made known about himself? Now, Paul is building his argument here. He doesn't just come out and say the answer in one statement, which might be helpful. He first wants to establish the fact that all men know what? That God exists. That God exists. So he says this, there's truth that may be known of God and it's manifest in everybody. 
meaning it's plain. That's what the word means, manifest. It's plain, it's evident, it's clear, it's easy to recognize for all people. Why? Because God himself has shown it to them. Truth is not something that requires uh, highly intelligent investigation, <laughs> where all the evidence is laid out and scrutinized, analyzed by professionals, right? It's not. It's not reserved for the intellectual elites of science or philosophy. No, this is plain for the simplest person in the remotest part of the world to understand. In other words, here's the point. Man knows. He knows God exists. It's like Job said in our corporate reading this morning, he, referring to God, seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. All men know the work of God. When speaking about evangelism, sometimes people raise the question about the quote-unquote poor native who's in you know, some remote part of the earth who's never been in contact with any other people groups. <clears throat> and the concern is they don't know God and they don't know Jesus Christ. Because nobody's ever told them. Well, it's true. It's absolutely true that they need to hear the gospel to be saved. But as far as just knowing that God exists, this text is Paul's response to that person. There's no such thing as a poor native who doesn't know. God has shown it to them. In other words, nobody has to be taught the truth that God is. Why? Because God himself teaches man. And he does so by leaving a witness. And that witness is called creation. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Hmm. Creation evidences not only that God exists, but it tells us something about his invisible attributes. Well, those are things like his intelligence, his beauty, his goodness, his power, his omnipresence. That means he's everywhere all at the same time. His eternality. That means he's not bound by time. He lives forever. All are shown by creation. Let me give you a, an example. There is a, um, a beetle. It's called the Bombardier Beetle. <laughs> Some of these examples I've taken from um, a neat little video series called Incredible Creatures That Defy Evolution. And uh, for you parents, I'd, if you don't have it, I recommend you pick it up. It's a great thing to watch as a family. Bombardier Beetle is a little bug about half an inch long, and it lives in the grasslands um, and the woodlands, basically all over the planet. And what's interesting about this little bug is it's able to create explosions from its abdomen uh, in order to, like a gun, to, to help uh, defend itself against predators like spiders. Okay, so what the scientists have found is that these bombardier beetles have an internal factory that mixes certain chemicals in the right proportions to create these explosions. And when you listen to the sound, to our human ear, it sounds like one, boom, one fire, one explosion. But actually, when they record it and slow it down, there's four pops that happen, boom, 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 really quickly. We just don't hear it. Now, what's interesting to the scientists who are looking at this, and particularly the evolutionists who are trying to explain how this bug came into being, is this bug has developed these fact, this factory to explode through its abdomen, and yet it doesn't blow itself up. 
It also doesn't launch itself like a rocket, uh, you know, <laughs> away from its predator. It's able to stand in one place and just boom, 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 fire at this thing. And it's effective. Clear evidence of an intelligent creator. Hmm. Our Lord is wonderful. I have to give you one more from the same series that I found interesting. It's, it's the, the common woodpecker, right? So the woodpecker has several pieces of equipment that help it do its job of drilling holes in trees and pulling bugs out really, really efficiently. First, it has uh, this industrial strength beak that doesn't get damaged or break when it pounds its head into the tree at 20 pecks every second. Incredible. Um, it's got special tail feathers, unlike any other bird that are strong, because what it does is sets itself up on the tree like a tripod with two feet and its tail, and it rocks itself back and forth as it hits the tree. So it needs strong tail feathers to keep it uh, rotating against the tree. Um, between the beak and the skull, this little bird has a, a shock absorber so that he doesn't hurt his head when he's hitting his head so hard. Um, in fact, scientists have found that the skull of a woodpecker is the thickest bone per weight of any uh, other creature that we know of. What's really interesting to me is how the bird gets the bug out after it's drilled the hole. So um, most birds have a tongue that just extends out to the end of its beak. A woodpecker's tongue will extend 10 inches beyond its beak. Huge tongue because it wraps, not like our tongues, it wraps down through its esophagus, out through the back of its head, around its neck, over the top of its head, and then comes down through its nostril and then out. It's like no other bird has this tongue, which again, they can't explain if, if it evolved. We're talking about macroevolution here. If it evolved from another bird, where's the other bird that it evolved from? Well, there is no other bird that has a tongue like that. So it's got its hole. It's now sticks this 10 inch long tongue into the hole. But the problem is how do you get the bug out with a smooth tongue? You don't, if you're a woodpecker, you've got barbs on the end of your tongue that are able to pierce into the bug and just stab it and pull it out. But it's not just that, he's got a little glue factory in his tongue that can create just the right amount of glue so that he gets the bug and pulls it out. Okay, now here's the problem. He swallows the bug. Oh, I've just swallowed my tongue. But he doesn't because he's got another little factory on his tongue that acts as a solvent that undoes the glue before he swallows it. Is our God not amazing? <laughs> Remarkable. See, these animals show, and these are two examples among millions, I'm sure, the invisible attributes of God's intelligence, his wisdom. It's on display for everyone to see. Now, the scientists who are macroevolutionists or who are trying to promote that theory, what do they do? They, they look at this evidence and they have to suppress the truth. Because the alternative to them is unacceptable. And what is that? It's accountability to the God who created these animals and who created them. And they don't want that. None of us wants that of our own until we come to Christ. So whether it's his beauty as seen in the symmetry or the balance of a snowflake or a dragonfly's wings, or it's his goodness because we're eating something enjoyable that heightens our senses like a raw honey or it's his power that we perceive in natural phenomena like volcanoes and earthquakes and powerful storms and his intense cold like we read about in Job or it's his omnipresence because how does he care for the whole earth simultaneously 
and yet attend to what's happening in the heavens and attend to what's happening in the depths of the ocean. Or it's his eternality because God creates and then he recreates and recreates again. And he's made the seasons in an endless cycle. And he's put the sun, the moon, and the stars in the sky so that everyone would know the faithfulness of our God. Because they endure just as he endures. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, the scripture says. That means that we have clearly seen them, how? With our minds. See, we observe creation with our senses. We've got five senses. That's how the information gets in. And then we reason in our minds, God exists. He exists. We know it. Now, we can't work the other way where we, by our own reason, arrive at God. It doesn't work that way. But what God has revealed of himself, he's given us the power of reason. That's what separates us from the animals, as well as having souls. And we were able to reason, our God exists. And I know something of his attributes, his power, his goodness, his omnipresence, his eternality. Hmm. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. And then Paul says this, being understood by the things that are made. Now, um, there is just a, a, a wonderful something here that popped out for me as I was doing my study this week. That phrase, the things that are made, is really one Greek word, and it's the Greek word poema. You might be familiar with that word because we also see it in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the things that are made, which is his creation, his poema, shows God's attributes, okay? Shows his attributes. It puts his attributes on display. And so it's like the workman who leaves his unique signature on his work. It's easy for everyone to identify. Just as creation evidences God's attributes, so recreation. That's us. Those who've been recreated in Christ are God's poem who evidence God's wonderful attributes. We are to reflect his glory, his attributes. We're his poem. So they are understood by the things that are made. And then he says, even his eternal power and Godhead. Now, the word for Godhead just means his deity. It means his divine nature. Uh, it's actually maybe not a great transition, a great translation to say Godhead, because Godhead usually refers to the fullness of God, Father, Son, Spirit, as we know him in Christ. But observing creation does not teach us about the full Godhead of God. It doesn't. It doesn't teach us about his mercy. It doesn't teach us about his compassion or his long suffering. Those are all part of special revelation. So we're talking about general revelation here, what God has revealed through creation. And then there's special revelation, what he's revealed in his word, that we might know him intimately. You know, um, hmm. make no mistake, general revelation gives us enough light and knowledge about God that it renders the ungodly man what the text calls inexcusable, without excuse. We have enough light. The word for without excuse is without apology. It's where we get the Greek or the word apologetics. So 
In other words, we can't make a defense of ourselves. We can't excuse ourselves before God and say, God, I didn't know. No one in the final judgment will be able to say, God, I didn't have enough evidence that you are, that you exist. Because if I had, I would have worshipped you. I would have devoted my whole life to you. No, there's plenty of evidence all around us every day, all day, for our whole lives. The question is, what did you do with that knowledge? And the scripture says you and I suppressed it. You see, if man acknowledges the Lord rather than suppressing him, he's accountable to God. He's already accountable to God, but he doesn't want to be accountable to God. So he pushes God out of his thinking. Huh. Man, scripture teaches, is the pinnacle of God's creation, the highest point of God's creation. So man, when he observes God in creation, is asking the big questions of life that we've all asked ourselves, right? Who am I? That's my identity. Um, why am I here? What's my purpose? Why has God created all this? And what does he expect of me? There's the accountability. That's what sinful man doesn't want. Listen to this quote from Dr. Sproul about this. He said, God as creator has the sovereign right to impose obligations on man as the creature without his permission. <laughs> See, that's the divine prerogative of the creator. He can make demands of us because he is the potter. He can do whatever he wills with the clay. He fashions it as he wills. He's God. But sinful man suppresses. By the way, um, this text teaches us that there's no such thing as an agnostic. An agnostic person, a person who says, I'm not sure if a God exists or not because I just don't have enough evidence. This text says you do, and you've suppressed it. There's also no such thing as an atheist, one who vehemently denies the existence of God because the evidence has been presented. He knows it, and he puts God out of his mind. He suppresses it. So going back to the beginning of verse 18, the reason God's wrath is revealed from heaven upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness is because God has revealed himself in creation. Man knows it. He knows God exists. He knows even something of the divine attributes of God. And yet with that knowledge, he incarcerates it. He won't let it return to God in praise and thanksgiving. That's why God's wrath is revealed against the ungodly and the unrighteous. So in closing, look, God's wrath is a reality. It's been demonstrated and it is coming again for all those who are outside of Christ. All humanity is the target of his wrath because all are sinners. And the reason for his wrath is because man knows the truth of God's existence and his attributes and he will suppress rather than praise. Loved ones, if the story ended here, we would all be in really bad shape, wouldn't we? <laughs> but it's against this dark backdrop of sinful humanity, of sin and sinful humanity, that the gospel shines so brilliantly. <laughs> Even though we are guilty of failing to respond properly to God's revelation of himself, and even though we're the ungodly who have no fear of the Lord and the unrighteous who break God's law constantly, the promise is this. If you will look to Christ, the righteous one in faith and put all your confidence, your hope and your trust in him and him alone, believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. And you are being saved. Amen. Christ is our hope in life and death. Christ alone. We're going to sing a song as we close here that I know probably all of you know. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath. That's what we need. And make me pure. The death of Christ averts the wrath of God and cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. Judgment is coming, brothers and sisters. But Christ is that ark that was typified in Noah's day. All who were in the ark were saved from the deluge of God's judgment that he brought on the whole earth. How do you get in the ark? Believe in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only ark that will save you. And for those of us who love Christ and who hear his word, praise the Lord. Jesus said this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. That is good news, brothers and sisters. The judgment is not for us who are in Christ. We've passed from death to life because it has been poured out on Christ, the Son. Do you believe that message? Next time, Lord willing, we're going to look at how God's wrath works itself out in verses 21 and following. But for now, let us pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, thank you for your word this morning, for the fellowship of the saints, for this holy gathering that you have called to yourself called out of darkness into your marvelous light because you have shown the light as you did at the beginning in creation. Out of the darkness, you pierced it with your light. And in the same way, you pierce our dark hearts with the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you show us who God is in Christ. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his willingness to lay down his life, his willingness to leave the glory of heaven and all his divine prerogatives as the Son of God for a season, not counting equality with God a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself in this sense by becoming a man. He took on flesh that he might represent all of us as our substitute, as the last Adam, the second man, the perfect man who lived as man was created to live in perfect relationship with you, in holiness, in perfect obedience. Father, we confess that we're sinners and that we fall far short. Every moment we are sinning. Lord, you are opening our eyes to show us just how sinful and dirty we are in our flesh, in our sinfulness. But in Christ, we are cleansed. We see the cross as more and more precious, Lord, because it is there that your wrath was averted and we are cleansed, washed, washed by the water and the blood. Thank you, Lord. May we meditate on these things. May we delight in the truth of your word. May we encourage each other in these things as each of us is going through different trials throughout the week. Father, strengthen your people with your word spiritually 
Strengthen your people physically as well, we pray. But Lord, not our will, according to your will, we pray. Whatever you see best, bless your people for your great name's sake. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.